Episode 152, Value Frameworks, American Style. Today, I speak with Leela Barnum, health economist. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Since 2015, a number of value frameworks have emerged in the U.S. They include the value frameworks from the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association value framework for cardiovascular disease. Then for cancer, we have the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, value framework. Also the drug abacus from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Care Center and the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, NCCN. Then lastly, the Institute for Clinical Effectiveness Review, ICER, Value Assessment Framework, which is interesting because it can be applied to any therapy area. In an interesting contrast to Europe and its NICE style value frameworks, NICE being the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence in Europe, in the U.S., value frameworks are free market, grassroots, and coming from clinicians and payers. Today, I discuss the present and future of American value frameworks with Leela Barnum, a health economist based in London. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Leela. Thanks so much for asking me to join you. I'm just trying to picture what a value framework looks like. Do the frameworks include certain patient demographic or in clinical information and then set out what the relative value is of various interventions as it pertains to that particular patient type? It's a really good question. I think value frameworks generically, what they're really trying to do is identify what those components or elements of value are. So we use the word value all the time. When it comes to healthcare, it's actually got so many components of value. It's about the clinical profile of a treatment. So it's about safety. It's about efficacy. And then when we start moving into the real world from clinical trials, it's about real life effectiveness. You know, How does this really work for real life patients? Now that we're moving into a much more patient-centric world, it's not just about a clinician's opinion. And the work on patient centricity is is really moving a pace now. It's about saying, well, what matters to patients and what matters to patients in their life and you know with their caregivers? Is it about their independence? Is it about managing a side effect? You know, when they might take a treatment, where they might go for that treatment. So, you know, do they need to to go into a hospital or can they have it at home? So it's actually multidimensional. And I think one of the issues that we're all struggling with is what are all these components? And even beyond that, how do we go about measuring them? And if there's going to be trade-offs, if we can't have everything, how are we going to decide, you know, which bits of value kind of matter more? So I think that's where they're aiming to go. And for a clinician, and I'm, I'm a health economist, but for a clinician, it's to, to try and help them translate the evidence, which will be all the clinical trials, but increasingly observational research, uh, patient reported outcome measures, to translate that from that evidence base into the patient that's in front of them and to have that kind of discussions. But increasingly as well, it is about these population level decisions. So it's about payers saying, well, look, we have a formulary. We can't keep adding everything. Uh, Let's look at the incremental value of a new product and let's look at the incremental cost and let's try and make a judgment. I've heard a number of times people saying, oh, you want me to treat the average patient, not the patient sitting in front of me. And some of these things could be 
well-founded if perhaps at the organizational level that notion isn't taken into account? Sure. And I think, I mean, I'm going to refer to the chair of NICE, Professor David Haslam, who talks very much about NICE guidance. It's, it's not tram lines, it's guidelines. It's to help support. And I think that what we need is a, is a sort of acceptance, really, that there's still uncertainty and there may be good reasons to depart. But, you know, let's try and understand that. Let's try and, and develop the evidence base. And I think an important kind of feedback loop, if you like, of the value frameworks is when they get it wrong, it's an opportunity to learn and improve on them. Those clinicians who might feel, you know, that that perhaps those guidelines aren't as helpful as they could be to their practice, you know, get engaged, take part, feedback. And I think that one of the important things that ICE is doing is let's review these. Let's look at what evidence is coming out. So that might be working with a patient organization and saying, we don't really understand what your quality of life is with this treatment. Let's Let's try and dig a little deeper and develop that further. Or it might be, you know, uh, let's do a registry. Let's understand patient preferences in terms of adherence and compliance. You know, who's dropping off this therapy? You know, who is it just not working for? Can we pinpoint that? For me, anyway, I think the opportunity and the optimism should be around, you know, it's not about trying to find an average patient with multiple myeloma or an average patient with asthma. It's about saying, look, here's a collection of options. And for a patient like you, we think the evidence tells us that these kind of, you know, this this stepwise change or this pattern of treatment could really suit you. Let's have a look at that evidence. Let's talk about it. Let's go through it. And let's make a decision that we should try this. A couple of things. When you start talking about patient centricity, it becomes clear that the outcomes that matter are the outcomes that matter to a patient. So it could be in some clinical trial that the you know, what was denoted as the outcome to be studied is, you know, some lab value. But ultimately, that may or may not be of value to the patient. What the patient might value is mobility or pain or, you know, factors that they physiologically can see or, or you know, an increase in survival time with this quality of life. As, as you mentioned, quality of life is, is very subjective to an individual patient. So it's really interesting what you're saying that as we start thinking harder about what is included in these value frameworks, information from the patient needs to be folded in there because as you're assessing value, you know, ultimately what's of value is a patient getting outcomes that matter to the patient. Absolutely. And I think we often forget, you know, that the healthcare system, it's there to serve patients and, you know, their caregivers, it's to address their, their needs, but it is about striking a balance. And I think that increasingly, what we need to see is a dovetail between some of the companies themselves are working with patient groups, they're working with them early, and they're saying, okay, we need to collect this kind of outcome marker, typically clinically driven, as you say, a lab test that may have been used and verified um, and will be acceptable to the regulators. But there might be additional things that really matter to patients. And to collect that, yes, it's going to add time and cost, but perhaps it's really going to be able to demonstrate what the true value is. And of course, that sounds ambitious. um, But I think that we're seeing sort of small steps towards that. We need those patients part of the value frameworks. And how can we make sure that actually the value framework is not not a rule book, actually? It's not just a simple, you know, we we add up clinical effects A, B, and C and we divide that by, you know, cost XYZ. Um, it has to be about understanding, you know, from the very first principle of what's valuable. And I think I like to see it as a sort of therapeutic alliance between the patient and the clinician. 
because uh, there's information that patients are not going to understand. They may not see the relevance of a really important clinical measure that might be a great proxy for, you know, for uh, worse ill health in the future. So it's about all of those factors coming together. And I think that's actually a big ask. And I think that, you know, agencies should be applauded for trying to do that. But I think the work is definitely not done. And I think it's beholden to health economists in particular, who uh, who can be accused of being a little hard hearted and just about the money. It's, it's actually about trying to find a framework that enables us all to have those discussions and understand those trade offs. And I think that that speaks to the need for the value frameworks to evolve over time. And I think agencies like ISA in particular have worked really hard on their next iteration of their value framework. Um, And I think, again, they're very brave to send that out and have not only kind of uh, questionnaires and the opportunity for people to submit comments, you know, online and submit comments and emails, but actually to do that face to face discussion, too. But on all sides, everyone has to be reasonable. We we simply can't afford to uh, to keep pumping money into clinical development for things that might not subsequently be worthwhile. So let's find a balance and let's, you know, let's kind of, you know, be a bit grown up about those trade offs and that uncertainty and what we're willing to accept. Let's talk a little bit about what these value frameworks actually look like, because I feel like I need to have a picture in my mind. And one of the pictures, based on what we've been talking about that pops up, is sort of how consumer reports, at least here in the United States, goes about it. You know, like, I'm evaluating a new range top, and they have those little circles. And if a circle is completely filled in, then that's really good. And then they evaluate based on different criteria. So for example, it's like, how does it look? And then you know, how fast does it turn on? Or what its safety rating is? So if you look at it from the user standpoint, you could look at what the overall average score is of all of those criteria. I don't think they're weighted. Or if I'm looking for the safest model, I could just look at that particular criteria. As a overall schema or construct, is that how these value frameworks are being put together? You know, all Biden probably a, well, definitely a much more sophisticated way. But in general, overall, is that what we're doing here? Well, I mean, you're not far off. I think the truth is this stuff is hard. You know, it's hard for us to try and articulate what are all those and things that are important. And when we look at ICE's framework or we look at what NICE looks at, there are some real similarities. So ISA will look at, you know, comparative clinical effectiveness. It'll say, look, you know, on clinical measures, how does this compare to the standard treatment? It'll look at, you know, the estimated cost effectiveness. So how much money do we need to spend to get this incremental benefit? And, you know, cancer care is a great example of where it will be a price, you know, a price for how many more months of life, for example. And then there's these other, you know, kind of really important, but just so tricky to pin down. It's about kind of other benefits or disadvantages. Um, And there's a big debate here about, are we taking into account, you know, your ability to work for many, many people? Work is actually a joy and something they, they feel frustrated when they get ill and they can't do. So do we take into account that kind of factor that sits you know, outside of the healthcare system as a formal kind of component of value. And they also take into account what they describe as contextual considerations. So this is this sort of feeling, this suspicion, this intuition that actually there are important things that we haven't quite captured. We might not have been able to even articulate them, let alone measure them. But, you know, there's a box for that. And I think by having sort of a home for it, what it means is it's transparent, that there, there is something there, even if we can't quite pin it down. But I think the thing that about the US with ISA in particular, that's really fascinating is that, you know, they're really formally ringing in 
issues around budget impact. So, you know, this might be, um, and the hepatitis C drugs are a great example of actually, this is really valuable stuff. This is a big improvement in what we can manage for people with hepatitis C. Okay, not everyone, but, you know, impressive cure rates compared to the treatments that we've had in the past. But actually, these are really expensive as a function, not only of price, but of the volume of patients that might potentially benefit. So how are we going to manage that? How are we going to manage that process of of adding in something which actually is valuable, but might just pose a real challenge for the system? So that value framework that ICE is, is using is really, really wide and really broad. And it's appealing because it's picking up on real life tension, you know, a, a budget holder you know, it's going to have to work through, well, if I'm going to buy all these drugs for hepatitis C, and, and that's great, I want to improve outcomes for all of those patients with hepatitis C, particularly some of the, you know, worsening conditions are really quite expensive to manage, um, and clearly very unpleasant um, for the patients themselves. So, you know, everybody wants to get this right. But actually, if it's going to take out you know, a really high proportion of your kind of annual budget, how are you going to manage that? So I think from my perspective, there's sort of an, an element of generic components and value frameworks. And then they bring in this real life, you know, actually, how, how are we going to pay for this? And how are we going to manage that? So it's all of those components kind of brought together. The tricky issue is, you know, how do we measure them all? Which weight do we place on all of those components? And what kind of does come out at the end? You know, is it a single cost effectiveness threshold? Is it a, a single value based price? And I think that actually, it's not. And one of the important things that might be missed when people think about value frameworks, it's not just the report that comes out, it's the conversations and discussions that are supported by that. And I hope that people are humble enough to realize that, you know, the report is is but an input into the decision making. Um, and ultimately, you know, it can't make the decisions that would, you know, almost be a, a derogation of responsibility on behalf of clinicians and payers who have to manage the system. It's an input into that to help us kind of manage those really tricky decisions. If you look at the drug abacus model, how that looks is you go into the drug abacus and then you're faced with this kind of questionnaire. Fill in how much you weight this particular criteria or or that particular factor. And then at the end, it, it actually pops up a price and it says, OK, well, if the intervention costs less than or equal to this number, then it could be considered worthwhile. And it's fascinating, right? But I think what that illustrates is that these frameworks can actually be flexible. I mean, what a great way to get somebody involved and to understand some of those trade-offs. So if I'm if I'm tapping this button up and I'm tapping that one down, how's that going to change things? And I think that helps to just bring some of the difficult nature of these decisions to life. So it isn't simple. I think the tricky issue obviously is you know, this is serious stuff. It's about the incentives for innovation. It's about getting not just today's treatments, but future treatments and working collaboratively. So, you know, if we can get all parties to, to just explore that in a safe way and have a look at that, and then to come around the table and really get down to the hard discussion of, okay, so what do we do about this treatment today in this marketplace um, with these patients who have these characteristics? Because there's no ducking the decision, but there might be an opportunity to say, okay, for this group, this looks promising, let's give access and let's find a price that makes sense. I'm a real fan. I mean, what you've described there is, is what you might call in a technical way, a multi-criteria decision analysis. It just helps people kind of understand the different weight they might put on things. How do you anticipate that in, at an individual clinician level, 
these value frameworks or even at an organizational level? Like, what does it look like? So I am a clinician and I am sitting in a room with a patient and the patient presents with a certain, you know, clinical profile. What am I supposed to do? You know, like see if there's a value framework that's been created for that particular profile and then read the report. I think some of the newer cancer treatments, so let's take ovarian cancer, where we know that patients who have a a BRCA mutation have a much higher chance of getting ovarian cancer. But we also know that um, they're going to respond differently to treatments, right? So, So this is a way that actually, if you apply a value framework to that particular drug, it's going to say, look, actually, it's about trying to find the right patient's to give that drug to get the best chance of those outcomes. Yeah, it sounds pat, but actually, you know, it is about keeping up to date with those reports and it's about taking the time. I think, you know, wouldn't it be great if clinicians um, and patients too, you know, had these opportunities to, to access the information in an appropriate way for them. I'm not saying that, you know, a clinician is necessarily going to want the same kind of report as a patient, but ways to communicate why they've decided that A or B treatment makes sense, and, but to support that conversation. So, so yeah, it really is about reading the guidelines. We mustn't forget that whilst value frameworks have courted a great deal of controversy, particularly when, so ISA might say that a drug price needs to drop by 50 or 60%, you know, clearly that, that's going to upset a few people. But actually, it goes the other way too. It can demonstrate, say, actually, these products are really good in these patients, you know, and the price could even be higher. So, you know, what are we going to do to make sure patients are really getting access? Because we're confident that this is great value. So I think it, it might sound pat, but yeah, read read the reports, engage with them. Uh, and I think that the challenge there, as ever, particularly for clinicians, is, you know, how do you keep up to date? So I think it's incumbent upon agencies like ISA um, to reach out, to be part of those networks, to inform the professional networks. Look, we've just done this report. How can we work with you? Do you think you can make use of it as part of the guidelines? So let's make it as easy as possible to use some of this. I almost see this as having two different goalposts. And one of them is improving patient outcomes, obviously, and maybe that takes precedent over everything. But on the other side, it's making sure that you're not overpaying or underpaying for things. You know, there's just the economic context, like whether you use the drug or not, is it priced appropriately for what you're getting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, let's not forget that there's a cost. If we make a bad decision, if we provide access to a therapy that actually isn't that valuable and it's going to be using up a lot of resources, there's health foregone. Um, And that's the real issue here is that, you know, this stuff is is tricky. It's always been around. You know, no clinician has, has ever sat and thought, oh, I know exactly what to do in these complicated cases, you know, when we're talking about oncology. Um, but actually it's about saying, you know, let's let's work together. Let's kind of work through this. Um, and it's bringing some of those issues out into the light. But there's a consequence. It's sending signals. So if a drug is not valuable, it's going to send a signal to the marketplace. So we need to we need to develop that and make sure that we, you know, don't start making kind of decisions that we later regret because actually we've we've undervalued something or, as you say, overvalued it. Um, and actually we could have we could have done better by spending our money elsewhere. When you said the word consequences, I thought of two, actually. One is to the system as a whole. If you're overpaying and kind of frittering away effectively the, you know, societal monies 
and there is we're in a situation of limited resources, then obviously, just like you you said, if you are overpaying someplace, then there's health that's foregone uh, in other parts of the system. However, there's probably also consequences. Well, I, I wouldn't say probably. There's definitely consequences at even the individual patient level. So if this value framework places a higher value on one intervention as opposed to another, and a clinician inadvertently chooses the lower value, then there's actually health that's foregone for that individual patient. And depending on what therapeutic category or area we're working in, that risk could be greater or lesser. Well, I think there's probably a really good reason why a lot of these value frameworks started with oncology because the stakes are very high. But the other thing I'm thinking here is also end-of-life care because in many cases, there's very aggressive therapies that are selected, which ultimately cost a whole lot and actually the results of that aggressive treatment are below nothing. You know, like had nothing been done, the patient would have been better off. So it would be very interesting. I'd be super intrigued to see some of the stuff applied, um, you know, to patients who are are clearly toward the end of their ride. Sure. I mean, it's such a tricky area, right? Because actually, until you're in that situation, you don't really know what you value. You can you can have an intellectual kind of view on that. But what it's like to actually go through that. My, my father actually died from a, a, a very rare cancer. Um, and there weren't any treatment options. So what became really important was, can we spend time with him? Can we not have to go to the clinics just to be monitored? Can we do that at home? Is there any monitoring we could do there? So, so I think for me, you know, that end of life issue is really live and really important. And it is about trying to understand, you know, where those trade-offs are. Uh, and I think that the, the last year of life can be incredibly expensive. But as you say, are we really following what patients want in terms of, the, you know, managing what is a difficult process, the best way for them? But I think the value frameworks can help us do that. So it's, I mean, it's interesting you brought up the end of life because here in, in the UK, we have a couple of modifiers for end of life care that NICE uses. So if this is a treatment that, you know, um, is going to extend life by at least three months, it's for a relatively small group of patients and where there's confidence around the, the evidence base and where we think that, you know, quality of life is still, you know, it sounds awful, but still worth pursuing. And then there's some flexibility and there is a slightly higher cost to threshold for that. But it is about that balance and what that applying that value framework. So NICE actually working on those products has really ignited that kind of debate and really supported a discussion around there are times when, you know, we should be talking about palliative care, not necessarily another drug treatment. Um, and I think that that's where I mentioned earlier, trying to shine a light on these decisions, that decision making process, you know, what treatment do we do now? What are the things that we should think about? Will I have to go to the hospital for that? Can I have it at home? Uh, what are the side effects? You know, how tired will I feel? How sick will I feel? You know, will I be able to go out and still see people? Or actually, will they have to come to me because I'm going to be so fatigued? It's really brought um, that out. So those were not new issues. It's not been generated by NICE looking at that or anyone else's value framework, but it's actually kind of provided a degree of transparency. And I think that we should support that because inevitable discussions that people have um, at various times in their life, whether it's expected um, and it's towards the, the, the end of life expectancy or whether it's completely unexpected and it might be much earlier than sort of the average 
uh, life expectancy of someone. So for me, the value frameworks provide an opportunity to kind of shed a light on that discussion and that debate. Actually, is it really worth this extra price tag for what might be, you know, a month's worth of extra survival, but with a really, really poor quality of life? But equally, the flip side, you know, there are treatments where there's a very, very long tail of survival. So, you know, what do you feel about that uncertainty? Do you want to take the chance of perhaps some side effects that are very unpleasant to live with, but perhaps it will give you eight months, not not one or not two. So um, so it supports that kind of decision making, I think. Um, at least I, I hope it does. And I'm optimistic that as we get better at doing this, um, and the US, I think, has a real opportunity to learn from what we've been doing in Europe, you know, to not not sort of the missteps that we've had at various times. There's been opportunities to kind of learn lessons. And I think, you know, we what we want to avoid is, you know, spending time on kind of judicial reviews and legal challenge, but actually to have a collective approach um, and, you know, to have a fair and reasonable process so that people can engage. And and that means real practical things like appealing. You know, I, I don't I don't agree with that decision. You know, let's appeal it. You didn't look at this evidence. So finding ways kind of through that. Um, but I think you've you've really kind of highlighted you know, that's the real life situation. Um, and can the value frameworks kind of deliver against that? If someone is interested in reading some of the articles that you have written on value frameworks or other topics, where can they go for more information, Leela? As everyone does these days, I have a Facebook page. I also have a blog spot. So take a look. Um, and to be honest, I'm thrilled to say that my parents did me a massive favor and chose a really unusual name. So um, just type Leela Barham in Google and uh, a lot will pop up. Fantastic. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Leela. Thanks, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.